You know, most problems in healthcare are fixed already. Primary care is already cured on the fringes. Reversing burnout, physician shortages, bad business models, forced buyouts, factory medicine, high deductible insurance that squeezes the docs and is totally inaccessible to most of the employees. The big squeeze is always on for docs. It's the acceleration of cost and the deceleration of reimbursements. I want you to meet those on this show that are making a difference with host Ron Barshop, CEO of Beacon Clinics. That's me. Nothing is going to be the same again. You heard that bumper music is now more upbeat because I thought the last one was more COVID-19 and now I'm going for a better future where everybody wins music. So that's why you've heard a new change. We don't need to be depressed right now. We need to look at this as an opportunity. At least I am. I see a future where everybody wins. My particular vehicle for that is direct contracting with employers direct to hospitals, direct to imaging companies, direct to pharmacy, direct to their physician, their primary care physician. And I'm creating an opportunity where the smartest people I know are getting together and talking about that future and making that a reality. Because today, if you're trying to reach your primary care physician, 80% of them do not have telehealth. Don't you wish your doctor had telehealth? So you could text them, email them, call them at any hour you need to. Well, that is the world of direct primary care and virtual primary care. That is the world of on-site clinics until a few days ago. We can't go to our on-site clinics anymore. So the broken glass in the mirror right now is primary care as a model is broken. It does not service as it has in the past 200 years. Today, we're looking at direct primary care as a very solid model where I can reach my doctor. And remember, I've told you this before, but my employees today have zero turnover because they can contact and access a doctor 24-7 in two languages. My absenteeism is virtually zero, absolutely virtually zero. They're not coming to work sick and presenteeism either because they have access 24-7, no copay, no deductible. So I can rail on about that, but the more important subject I want to bring up is how are we treating people and how are we communicating with people in healthcare today when a lot of the spigots are turned off? Andrew Poles is a world-class speaking consultant. And Andrew, welcome to the show. It's great to be back, Ron. Thanks for having me back. We are uh, excited to talk about communicating strategies with healthcare people in our family, with healthcare workers that we're going to be confronting with directly and indirectly with. Um, these are folks that are working in about as high a stress situation as maybe I can remember my lifetime. Can you think of anything even remotely resembling that maybe 2008, 2009, Andrew? I don't think there's really anything in my lifetime that has any proximity to the level of stress and anxiety this is causing for people. My strategy is to be gentle with people right now. I kind of always am, but I am finding myself flaring up, cooped up with my wife, cooped up with, you know, I'm not getting the social animal machine I need to feed my uh, personality. Um, it's a very frustrating time. So do you have any strategies for making ourselves more social in a time when we can't be? Well, I think to the extent that it's workable right now, I like the idea of people having micro gatherings. Maybe it's three people, you know, in an open space like a park uh, where you don't have to worry about services in someone's home, where people can come together 
and have a conversation where they're physically with each other. And the other thing I think is really important about that, whether it's done in person or whether it's done virtually on a conference call or a video conferencing system, I think it's really important right now that we have our attention on having everybody in the conversation win. So you talked about that in the domain of healthcare, but I think it's applicable everywhere. So, you know, what is it gonna take for me to have you win on this podcast? What can I bring to this conversation that's gonna have you win at causing the transformation you're out to cause for people in North America through primary care? If I have my attention on that and I'm listening for that and I'm thinking about that and I really do care about you winning, whether I come up with an effective strategy for you or not, you're going to experience my authentic commitment and concern for what you're up to. And that will create a kind of connection in our relationship that's very nurturing. It's also critical for the human being, for the human animal that we are, to have those kinds of connections and relationships. So I think that's what's critical about these meetings. It's not just that they happen, which is great, and in and of itself valuable, but that underlying it, there's a commitment there with everybody to lift each other up and have one another win. I have a conversation I need to have with a dear friend of mine. And he said, Ron, when this first started 10, 12 days ago, Ron, what would you do if you could get something out to every household in America? And I said, a pulse oximeter goes on your pointer finger every time you go see the doctor. And what it's measuring is the oxygenation of your blood underneath your fingernail. And it's extremely accurate, incredibly simple, because it says 100% or 0% or some number in the middle. And the minute your pulse ox drops below 97, this is a signal to your doctor or your caregiver that there's problems. And if COVID-19 is an ammonia-induced event, we can tell when your oxygen starts dropping as your lungs are starting to fill with fluid. So I said, I would have a pulse ox in every home that has a suspicion of flu because they can watch for the pneumonia and catch it early and know when they should go to ER as opposed to flooding the ER where they're going to have to waste your time, triage you, and perhaps infect your whole family. So that pulse ox was, there were 15,000 bought the next day by this guy. He's got this save the world complex, but it doesn't stop there, Andrew, and this is where I need your help. He then went to YouTube and he figured out how to make an oxygen concentrator, which is a non-FDA approved device. And I'll be damned, he came up with a machine that pumps out basically 10 times, well, 20 times as much oxygen as your lungs can actually bear, and at a concentration double that your, that your lungs can bear. He's created a, another way of creating death that he didn't even know about. So you, you're in my lungs, cannot take that kind of oxygen at that kind of pressure and survive. Um, I, what conversation should I have with him? Because he's starting to post this device everywhere as if it's some sort of, some sort of a miracle solution. Okay, good. So I think that what's challenging about the conversation, obviously, and what's right there for people when they look at these kind of conversations is, if I say what I'm really thinking, is this person going to get upset and react and will I be effective? And what will be the consequence or the impact on our relationship? And those are the kinds of concerns that are often there for people about conversations, which are kind of in the background for people and they never deal with directly. People generally try to work around that by being strategic in some way which ultimately leaves them being inauthentic. So what I find is effective with that is actually to bring what's there in the background to the foreground. So what that might look like, for example, is you say, listen, I, I wanna have a conversation with you and I have this big concern that if we have this conversation, 
you're going to be upset with me or it's going to damage our relationship or it's going to take the wind out of your sails. I'm not sure, but I want to tell you my commitment in the conversation. And my commitment in the conversation is to empower you to make the difference that you're out to make. So can we have that conversation? And when you deal with what's in the background up front, before you even get into it, it creates trust. And it creates a way for the person you're speaking to to listen so that they get you're on their side. And it's been shown through the neuroscience of communication that establishing that baseline of trust, which gets created through authenticity and transparency, that the opportunity for people coming together and co-creating solutions goes way, way up. So that's my coaching that I give to people in my workshops is you always got to begin with a foundation of trust, transparency, authenticity. That's how I would approach it, Ron. I have a second situation I want to bring up with you, and you're probably going to give me the same answer because I know you will, Andrew. And I, the second situation is, and I'm going to call him out, the CEO of Lifetime Fitness sent me an email a couple of days ago, which I'm assuming he sent out to, if not hundreds of thousands, millions of members of this gym, wonderful gym. And he says, the best thing you can do for yourself is kill the virus by going into a sauna or a steam room. I'm uh, kind of in the lung pulmonary business because I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV and that I have allergy labs. So my allergy labs, I've learned a lot about lung function because asthma is pretty much, if you have asthma, you pretty much have allergies. If you have allergies, you don't pretty much have asthma. They're not mutual, they're, they're not mutually exclusive. So what happens in, uh, when you bring in hot air from a steam room or a sauna into your lungs is it cools down like a machine. It just cools down to your 98.6 or frankly even cooler and you would burn your lungs if you did do what he said, which is inhale 102 degrees of heat. I mean, your alveoli would be fried worse than the COVID's going to fry it. So um, I corrected him. I posted it on LinkedIn. I had, you know, several thousand followers say thank you for this information so um, now he didn't get back to me. He's probably got a million things to do other than respond to Ron Barshop. But how do you politely and cleanly correct somebody when they're giving bad information that you know for a fact that's maybe harmful to a lot of people? Uh, well, I think that I like to give I like to um, give people two types of coaching with those kinds of questions, Ron. I like to give people a sense of the nature of the issue as well as the function. In other words. What is this really about? And then what does it look like to act in a way that's effective? So I think the nature of this that people need to come to an understanding about is that people's actions are um, not necessarily consistent with what they know or understand or information that is founded. You know, people's actions are actually in a dance with, they're correlated with um, the way they see situations. So for example, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people know that if you want to be healthy, you should exercise and, you know, eat a certain way. And they totally understand that, but they don't do it. Or people understand that, you know, when they talk a certain way to their partner or their spouse, it really upsets them. And that if they didn't do that, their relationship would be much more, more powerful, but they still do it. So people don't act on things that they know or understand. And that's really important to get in the domain of communication. People have got to grasp that people's actions are consistent with their view of the situation they're dealing with. So that's the nature of this, okay? So whatever people do or say in these situations, you have to be sensitive to that if you want someone to alter their behavior, 
what you're really after is having them alter the way they see something and giving them information doesn't necessarily do that. I gotta tell you, that's, that's a great example. I was standing in line at the grocery store to get in um, and next to me was an, a registered nurse. She's a nice enough lady and we had a nice visit while we're waiting because what else are you gonna do? While we're talking and she says registered nurse, I recoil probably a little more too physically and I said, are you working with patients every day? And she says, no. I work for one of the big insurance companies and I do telephone work for them. And I said, thank God. And she goes, I know, I feel like there's a lot of shaming going on with healthcare workers right now. I mean, it'd be like, I had to sneeze so bad 10 minutes later when I got in the store because some strong cologne passed me by. And man, I, I was worried about sneeze shaming. Like the whole universe is going to run away from me when I sneeze with that cologne. Um, how do we do our best to not shame our healthcare workers that we're running into in the grocery store line? and reframe it so that they're just another human being like us that needs some love too. Well, I, you know, one thing that's really, really, really powerful in the domain of communication is acknowledgement. Um, we got to talk a little bit on our last show together that uh, a, an experience of being known and understood creates a very, very powerful experience of connection. And that includes the release of really, really important neurotransmitters like dopamine in the brain. So acknowledgement goes a long way towards creating that. And I think, you know, if you're, if you're with the healthcare worker and you do understand that right now, those men and women are so under the gun, they are being forced to be heroes in a, in a, in a war that is, the odds are greatly stacked against them. I think whatever you could authentically say to them to acknowledge them, will leave them with an experience of being appreciated, even if you're increasing your distance from them physically. Like, wow, gosh, I just, I can't even imagine what it's like to be you in a hospital every day and the risk you're undertaking. I'm so glad you're doing what you're doing. I cannot thank you enough for putting yourself in harm's way like that and taking care of people. Did you ever have anybody in your life, Andrew, that served you by, um, I used to have breakfast with a sort of a father figure and Bobby would always say to the, um, people sitting next to us, they're wearing military veterans hats. God bless you for serving our, God bless you for serving me. And I just really took that to heart. And I started using that every time I met somebody in the military is thank you for serving. Should we be saying that same thing to our healthcare workers in our lives? I, I think so. And, 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 you know, the thing about it is it's gotta be authentic. If you turn it into a slogan, it'll lose all of its power. So people should just find whatever way of expressing that that's real for them and say it that way. And as long as it's authentic for you, even if the words are clumsy or whatever, the person you're talking to will get it. People get what's behind what you say way more powerfully than whatever words you use to express it. So the key thing is have it be authentic. Um, one of my best friends is actually my first guest on this show, Dr. Dave Berg. Um, was so good that he did three of our first five shows. And he's a visionary, and I wanted to get his take on what's going on right now. But he has 150,000 patients in Arizona. He's got bigger fish to fry than Ron Barshop's friendship. And we've always been really good. I mean, if it's midnight, we'll return each other's calls, and he's not been good at it. And he explained to me when we finally talked yesterday, I've got five minutes. Let's set aside two hours on Saturday morning like we normally talk. Get your cigar out, and let's relax and enjoy our, each other. So we're going to get that talk in. but. I was being very judgmental, but here he is a healthcare worker and I forget that. You know, I just think, hey, he's not being my good friend now, but he is actually being a much more important role than a big good friend to me right now. He's taking care of his population. Is there, um, 
other ways that we can express our love and our gratitude for those that are the heroes in this battle right now that we're about to see for the next six months um, with just random small acts of kindness uh, in addition to our communication style, what strategies are you recommending in your seminars to showing love and kindness just in the smallest of ways? Well, I think one thing you can do that's really, really simple uh, is ask them how they're doing. You know, for the most part, they're being asked to provide, to give, to serve, and to get, and they have to actually do a lot of diagnosis and treatment, et cetera. So I think it's really powerful just to ask them, hey, how are you doing? How are you handling all this? And give them the opportunity to really express what they're going through and have somebody get it. Uh, so that's one thing. A second thing you can do if you know someone in that boat is literally do anything, like literally anything that is a, in some, a, some kind of a gesture or a gift. You know, send them, send them Tiff's treats, if Tiff's treats in Texas here are still delivering, or, you know, drop something off on their doorstep, or just leave them a voicemail saying, listen, I was thinking about you today, and I just wanted you to know I'm keeping you in my thoughts. You know, anything that you do, any gesture that you make that expresses your genuine concern for them and your appreciation will be felt tenfold by them. You know, the experience that another human being thought of you outside of the context of them needing you is so powerful for human beings. I was standing in line with her and the first opener she says to me, Andrew, is that um, I can't find any kale. I have a kale addiction. Uh, we get in the store, we're kind of doing the same circle that everybody does in the grocery store. And I find just pounds and pounds of kale that must have just freshly arrived. I just go grab an armful of it and I stick it in her, her uh, bin as she's shopping and she just looks at me and starts laughing. Like it was a little bit of a joke, but that I did. I think I did exactly what you're talking about was just, you know, showed a little bit of kindness. I maybe should have let her in front of me in line, but the kale joke was a pretty good joke. Well, in addition to being a great joke, which made me laugh by the way, um, is, but she also got to have the experience that someone got her. And again, that releases dopamine in the brain. It gives people the experience that they're connected. And there isn't anything more critical to the health of a human being as a social animal than that experience. And you gave her that experience and it wasn't a hard thing to do, but it went, my, I promise you, she thought about that the rest of her day and maybe even throughout the week. Very powerful what you did. She, uh, we were talking and I said, what are you short on right now? What can I do to help you? And she said, well, I can't get any salmon. And I said, you know, I have pounds of it in my freezer. I can't eat it all. I have it delivered every month and I'm backlogged. If you give, if you come by and my wife and I give you salmon, then would you give me your 13 year old boy who can do some chores around my house and slave labor for about a week? And, <laughs> and she said, you can have him. He's yours. <laughs> um, so, so powerful listening. We've talked about the importance of uh, small acts of kindness and love. We've talked about um, really, uh, being there and asking how you're feeling or how you're doing with all this. Those are really great tools. What can we be doing remotely for our healthcare workers, Andrew, that gives them love? Um, much like somebody who's on the front line of a war in Iraq, we, you know, we send um, care packages with food and postcards from home and stuff like that. Is something we can be doing for emergency wards or um, critical care in terms of sending them something or doing something kind for them? Um, well, you know, I, I could speculate about that as a human being. If I look at it from the perspective of communication, um, I think what I would do if I were in that boat is I'd actually start talking to some people who are in the thick of it 
to give me some feedback about what kinds of things would make the biggest difference for people in that situation. Because otherwise, I'm just going to try to figure it out from my own very limited uh, sets of experiences and understanding. Because I'm not a healthcare worker. I would actually go to someone like my brother, who's an ER doc in Colorado, which is kind of a hot zone right now. Or the pharmacist I talked to today. You know, I talked to a pharmacist today who's here in Austin who uh, had to go and deal with someone who coded out in the hospital because he's part of the code team. And, you know, he shared with me as a pharmacist, they call him to go deal with the code. He runs down there. There's no time to glove up. There's no time to put on a gown. There's no time to put on a mask. He's got to start pumping this woman's chest. And to his credit, they saved this woman. And then they tested her for the COVID virus. and They don't have the results back yet. But you can only imagine what's going through his mind, you know? And I said, did you have a chance to did you have a chance to put on your mask? He's like, you don't have a chance. When someone says your mom's dying, you don't go wear the gloves. You jump right on there and start pumping their chest. So see, that's something I never would have thought about had I not talked to him about what he was going through. So I think it's important if we're going to do something like that, if you're not intimately connected with it, is actually ask some people, find out what would make the biggest difference, you know, for you all right now and provide that. So in the midst of a week when I've had to let six people go, I've had to let uh, an equal number of contractors go that are uh, K-1 employees. I've had to uh, really get my company outfitted for the future to be healthy and strong for this as we're dropping in primary care volume about half. My uh, best friend calls me this morning and his daughter flips his car three times yesterday. She snuck out of the house. 16-year-old wanted to be with other 16-year-olds, sick and tired of being with her folks, like a typical 16-year-old, not a, nothing uncommon there. But she almost killed herself in, in her effort to just go do the wrong thing. And now he says to me, Ron, what should I say to my daughter now? I, can't, I've got, I don't want her running away. I don't want her um, feeling my pain and my hurt of what she's done. But I've got to communicate with my daughter. This is a difficult one, Andrew. I didn't tell you I was going to give you a hardball. No, that's all right. I actually, I'm glad that this one came up. Uh, I think, again, if you start with the principle and then you go to the function. So the first thing is you really got to get where that person is at, the 16-year-old is at, so that whatever conversation you have can be effective. You know, you, you, uh, you can't shove a square peg in a round hole. So if there's a round hole, you need a round peg or you need to make the hole square. So the first thing is we've got to get where she's at. And I would promise you one of the places that that 16-year-old is at, however it gets expressed, is that she feels guilty. She feels responsible. And she probably doesn't see a way to make up for what she's done. She can't pay for the car. She can't take away the impact on her parents of their worry. You know, so right now she's in a tough spot. And I think what's important for us as parents, ultimately, is that whatever happens to our kids in life, long as they're safe, what we ultimately want is to equip them for being powerful with life. Now, our instinct is to react and be angry because we're threatened, we're scared, you know, we're afraid for their life, but that's not going to be effective. So I think what we need to start with is giving her an opportunity to just communicate, give her the opportunity to communicate. Hey, I know, you know, you might be worried about me being upset, but don't worry about me. We're going to work all this out together. How are you doing? Tell me what's going on with you. What are you feeling right now? What do you need to tell me? And create as big an opening as you can for that child to start to communicate with you. And if you stay committed to something that makes a difference, like guiding her through this, giving her a way to get it complete for herself and for you, 
you'll work it out together, but you got to start with where they're at. So you know what you can say that they can hear. The message is that um, I have learned that we don't get in our childhood. So I'm calling them unmet needs of the family messages that sound like this. And I gave him this strategy last time we had this conversation about uh, Carolyn about three months ago. The first message is this, you're enough. You're more than enough. The second message is that the world needs you so badly right now. You are exactly what the world needs. And the third message is I love you no matter what. So unconditional love. If you roll a car three times, I love you no matter what. And I love you maybe even a little bit more because now I know we need to talk. So, um, those three messages, if we could get those a thousand times for every time our parents told us, no, don't stop, you know, quit. Um, you know, you're driving me crazy. Then we would all be different people today. And it's, it's, do you agree with me that most men and women that are adults walking around have a lot of unmet needs for love? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, Ron, you're right. You're right in the bullseye of the issue, which is that a lot of those unmet needs are actually a function of something that's playing out in our lives that has never been resolved from our relationship with our parents. And I'm not saying this in a psychological way. Um, I know there's a lot of work on this in the domain of psychology, but I'm not working in that domain. I'm talking about that in terms of that that's the very first relationship that we have in our life with the people who are the source of our life. So it's a very powerful model. So most of the messaging we get from the moment we can understand language comes at us from a paradigm of there's something wrong. Something wrong with you, there's something wrong with the situation. And what I love about what you said, Ron, is that it's all ways of communicating love and concern in a paradigm where there isn't anything wrong. Maybe something happened that doesn't work, but it's not the same thing as there's something wrong with you or with this. And if parents can find a way to communicate with their children from a paradigm where there's nothing wrong, and there sometimes are things that just don't work, then kids can always feel whole and complete. They can feel perfect just the way they are, and they can be equipped to cope with life and really be powerful in relationships. And I think your message was a beautiful way of expressing that. He told me that his um, daughter is basically in a club of kids. He's joking with the word club. Um, and their common um, language to get in the door is, I hate my parents too. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, um, I didn't go through that with my daughter. I think it's fine for kids to go through that. I don't think, it, you know, but I, I didn't go through that with my daughter. I think part of why I didn't go through that with my daughter is because of the messaging that you just said, you know, that, that, um, and I just want to say one more thing, Ron, that I think is critical about this, if I may, time allowing is, I think a lot of us grow up thinking that the way to be a parent is that we're supposed to know everything and have an answer for everything and have everything worked out and then give it to our kids. And I think that's exactly wrong. Um, the way that I raised my daughter was I was really vulnerable with her. And I shared with her the places in my life where I was struggling or where I failed. Or like, hey, God, I just lied to somebody. I can't believe I did that. I got to go and clean this up. I'm so embarrassed but I'm going to go do that because my word matters to me, you know, and really modeling for her what it looks like to be a human being is a big mess so that she knew it was okay to go through what she was going through. And she would communicate to me, honestly, what she was going through. And um, I think that's a really important message too, that parents don't have it all figured out. We're not perfect. And we're going through the same stuff they're going through. And I think if parents can create that relationship, it's very powerful. Andrew, I took up tango dancing about 10 years ago and fell in love with it because just a subtle touch of the hand 
can direct my partner where she needs to go backwards in her high heels. It's a very, uh, it's, it's almost like steering a tractor or steering a car, but it's a lot more elegant a car when you're dancing in tango. <laughs> yeah. You were a professional dancer and danced competitively for many years. So your subtle hand was the same thing. You could direct where you needed to go on the stage for that which was unrehearsed. What can we do in our lives with our communication style to be that subtle hand to love on properly the people that are around us right now? Well, I think the, the one thing people can do to be that subtle hand is to, is to practice developing a sensitivity to what's going on with the listener versus being really, really focused on what you want to get said. So there's a difference between trying to get something out and being focused on trying to get it in with the other person. And you can get a lot of stuff out that never gets in and it doesn't make a difference. So I would say that subtle hand in communication is have what you're going to say come from them, not you. That's what's going to make you a powerful partner. Give me an example of that, Andrew. Well, you know, I might, um, I might be having a conversation with my wife about what she's dealing with with her new job. And what might be right there for me to want to get out is all my brilliant pearls of wisdom and my advice about how I think she ought to handle it. But if I get really, really present to what's going on with her, what I, start, what I might start to get present to is her experience of trepidation or maybe it's self-doubt. Now, I'm making all this up, so I don't want to try to throw my wife into a, under the bus here, but I'm making this up. So let's say what's there for her is trepidation. Maybe the thing that there is to say is to say, honey, you got this. It's nice. Andrew, you and I have talked many, many times before, and I can't even count the number of times I said, I wish I would have had a tape recorder while we were talking because there's so many pearls of wisdom out of your mouth. And guess what? We did that today. <laughs> <laughs> I got to record my brilliant friend, Andrew Poles. Andrew, how can people find you if they want to reach you for Impact Speaking Labs? Well, they can send me an email at Andrew at impactspeakinglab.com or they can go to our website impactspeakinglab.com and they can request a conversation with me that way and or call me on my cell which number is available on the website okay and i have to compliment you andrew you're the first person when i ask my trick question at the end that nobody's ever prepared for if you could fly a banner over america you gave such a good one last time and now i'm going to trick you again and say give me a great message we should be flying over america right now for everybody who is cooped up with each other uh, be kind okay. to yourself and your family. You know, I, I got to tell you, 99 out of 100 folks that are on the show give me about a 20-minute answer to that, which means that the banner would have to go on to Antarctica, <laughs> Houston to Antarctica, just not a banner that long. But, you know, it's a trick question because it is hard to summarize. I think it was Mark Twain that said, I would have written you a short letter, didn't have time, so I wrote you this long one. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Andrew, um, we didn't have time for our short interview because there's too much to talk about. So we had to have this long one. Thank you again for being on the show. We'll look forward to getting you back again soon. Such an honor, Ron. Thank you so much. And Ron, thank you for making this available for people. You're making an enormous difference. Thank you. Andrew Poles, communications expert and communication coach to the tens of thousands. Andrew, what can we do in our cooped upness to be better communicators? I, people are definitely going to find that social distancing from the people they're cooped up with will greatly improve their communication. I think it's uh, people need space from each other physically and uh, emotionally to kind of just um, reboot.
And so if you can find a way to get some time away from each other and know that that's not only okay, but necessary, when you do come back together, you'll have a lot more room to listen and talk with each other in a way that's productive. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.